politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM KPFK for all of Southern California, Santa Barbara to San Diego, from the ocean to the desert to the mountains. Really nice to be with you. We're live streaming, of course, for the world at kpfk.org. This show is also podcast and posted to YouTube. But uh, however you happen to be listening to us, hopefully in real time, here on Tuesday afternoons at 1 o'clock, we're really happy that you've made it a point to to join us. Today's program is going to be about self-love, the nature of love, a little bit about the nature of fear, and what is self-love? Indeed, what is the self? We can't really talk about self-love without taking a closer look at what we mean by self. And so our identity is really tied up in our emotional nature. We're less what we think of ourselves than we are what we care about. And I think that's worthy of some reflection. What if that were true? What if I'm right? What if what you think of yourself not to mention what other people think of you or what you fear other people may be thinking of you is of little consequence. But but also what you think of yourself is dwarfed by how you feel about yourself. And moreover, what do you care about? What if your identity is found in what you care about? And indeed, even the fact that you do care, that you are a caring person. We may care about different things. (laughs) You like this and I like that. You want the red one, I prefer the blue one. But we care. That's a nice word for love. And I use it deliberately because love is so overused. But self-love is the topic, and I want to play for you today a segment of a class that I did a few years ago. I like to do this every three or four months, and uh, spring has arrived in Southern California. We're on daylight saving time. It's a time for change and renewal and rebirth, and seems like a good time. It's been about four months since I did one of these. You know, I've been on KPFK for about 16 or 17 years. Um, Initially, about 14 or 15 years. And then I retired and I moved out of state. After a few years, I came back to Southern California. But my wife and I live in the desert. And so when I got a call about a year and a half ago to return to KPFK, I said, well, you know, I live couple hours out of town. I can't drive into the city. And uh, the fellow that was hiring me, the general manager, said, well, 
COVID is raging. We have very few people in the studio anyway. So if you can do that show from your home, if you have a little studio. I said, yeah, in, in fact, I do. He said, well, great. We'd, we'd like you to do a program called The Ageless Wisdom. The show I did before was Inner Vision. And uh, in fact, Nita Valens, as you know, still does an Inner Vision uh, show on Fridays at 1 o'clock. She's been doing that for, gosh, 30 years almost. My point is that I don't talk about myself very much on this radio program. I don't uh, talk about classes and public appearances because I'm not doing them anymore. Again, I'm retired and I live out in the desert. There's not that many people out here. And uh, again, we've got COVID and such. But I've got tapes. I've got uh, digital recordings of classes that I did a few years ago in Los Angeles. and So that's what I'm going to share with you today. By the way, I am doing a Zoom class on Sunday morning uh, live, which I also have not mentioned on the radio, but if you want to know more about that, it's absolutely free. I don't, I don't charge anything for it. Free Sunday morning Zoom class. It's uh, afternoon in the mountain time zone, central and eastern. It's Sunday evening in Europe and Africa. But uh, if you want to know about it, I have a special email address you can use. And uh, if you just write to me at aw mystery school at gmail.com aw for ageless wisdom aw mystery school at gmail.com and say uh put me on the newsletter for that special zoom class that i heard about called the wisdom of the soul it's a non-religious approach to personal and transpersonal or spiritual development and if you want to join us on that, uh, just shoot me the email, and I'll get back to you on that. But today, this is a recording that uh, goes back probably 10 or 12 years. So you're, here are some references to, um, I think, the Bush administration, uh, some references to invading Iraq. It may sound a little bit dated, but... The rest of the information, of course, is evergreen, and I think you're going to like it a lot. It's one of my favorite lectures, and uh, we'll take a short break here and then come back with two segments, about 25 minutes each, and that'll take us to the top of the hour, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. So settle in and relax. Self-love, self-identity, our topic on today's Ageless Wisdom program here on KPFK. We'll return right after this short break. This is Michael Benner. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles. The self-love technique. And essentially, this is an idea that love is not limited to an emotional feeling or a set of emotional feelings. We have spoken and will again today about love as a way of describing all positive feelings, 
and using fear as a term to describe all negative feelings. And today at the top, we're going to talk about transmutation, which is the way we turn fear into love, the way you take everything that hurts and transmute it or uplift it into a feeling that you want to remain. Uh, I saw a greeting card the other day that said simply, uh, happiness is the feeling you have when you don't want it to end. And happiness, of course, is a quality of love. So we'll be talking about that and about uh, transmutation. But the self-love technique, you'll recall, those of you who were here, most of you were, is a technique where you meet and greet in an alpha brainwave level, a place of perfect peace, a meditative altered state. Yourself as a child of three or four years old, and you remember, rediscover on a very powerful and deep level, joy. Now joy I will describe simply as happiness for no reason. Joy is something that all children have, though not all the time, you know, Kids can get tummy aches and have gas and be hungry and, just like me, cry and wail if they're not fed or if they have uh, some sort of problem. But uh, though prone to their temper tantrums like the rest of us, children do know joy. And many of us have lost touch with the joy in our lives and believe instead that there has to be a reason in your life for you to be happy. And so joy is happiness for no reason. Happiness, it could be argued, is even an unreasonable uh, situation or experience. And so we'll do more today to distinguish between reason as a quality of thought and feelings, which can be, as I'm sure you've noticed in your life, very unreasonable. So when somebody says, you shouldn't feel that way, or, oh, don't feel that way, it's like, well, you know, if feelings had reasons behind them, they'd be thoughts. Feelings by their very nature are unreasonable. Or you may like words like irrational, because <laughs> sometimes they are. When love is capitalized, we're talking about a higher heart. We're talking about what and I think religion touches on this, but it's more likely to be found in metaphysics and mysticism. Love as consciousness. Love capitalized as absolute fearlessness. Love as consciousness, love as fearlessness. For those of you who've been raised in Christian traditions, you may know that in John it says quite simply, God is love. It doesn't say God loves you. You go to church, they'll tell you that God loves you. But what John said was God is love. Well, now that's a very different thing, isn't it? It begs the question that was asked last week, what do you mean by God as the all that is, or the totality, or the oneness of things? When most of us, because of our upbringing, deal with a religious concept of that absolute, that creative, divine, supreme force or intelligence that is uh, so, so often pictured the way Michelangelo pictured it as an old white guy on a cloud 
reaching out from some separate and remote place to touch man. Now that's an allegory. It's just an allegory. And yet, here we are in a space age with Hubble telescopes that can see to the edge of the universe and, and rocket ships that can go to the moon and, and other planets. And uh, if God was a man on a cloud, we'd see some evidence of that. So we need better metaphors. We need better allegories. And I'm not going to go into a long discussion of it now other than to say that traditionally to visualize God or the Supreme Creator as a being is idolatry. It really is idolatry. Thou shalt have no false gods before me. So, before you. So if you go into a Jewish temple, you won't see stained glass windows or uh, frescas or tapestries or uh, statues or icons of any kind. If you go into a Muslim mosque in the same way, you will not see any of these representations. In the Catholic and Protestant phase, we love that stuff. And I must say, you know, I, I, I do remember, bless you, as a little boy, being, you know, having my catechism class marched through our local parish by uh, several nuns. And they said, now, these are simply reminders. These are representations. You don't pray to the statue. That would be a graven image. Or to the fresco on the ceiling, or to the tapestry, or to the stained glass window. Nevertheless, it is idolatry to think of God as a man, or a woman, or a thing, or a form. Because that would be to limit that which cannot be limited. Much is made even of the names of God, as if there is great magic in the names of God. And in some senses, that's true. But again, to name the ultimate is to create a beginning and an end to that which has no beginning and has no end in this formless. So mystics have always tried to, to avoid this. So what better way to represent the divine and spiritual source of true love, not merely as an emotion, but absolute fearlessness, the consciousness that illumines and animates you, than to choose an image of yourself as a little boy or a little girl, three or four years old, that wakes up in the morning happy for no reason, singing, dancing, Kids don't even need music to dance. They just dance. Okay? And are absolutely spontaneous. In many ways, we live our lives backwards, as the legends of, of Merlin and King Arthur indicate, that he lived his life backwards. What does that mean? That in the old mystery schools of Pythagoras and Plato and and even pre-Pythagorean schools and the ancient hermetic traditions of Egypt, you would apply to a mystery school, and if accepted as worthy of study in these arcane teachings from time out of mind, you would be called a hierophant. You would enter as an expert, as a wise person, as I've already acknowledged you folks as wise people for being here. And after many years of study, 
If indeed you proved yourself worthy, you would graduate as a neophyte, as a beginner. And that's the nature of wisdom. The more you know, the more humble you become. The more you know and understand, the more you realize there is still to be understood. And so what an irony, or, or how perfect, to see the wisdom of children, that they in many ways are more highly evolved than they will be at any other time in their life. More free, more spontaneous, more joyful, kinder and more loving until they get trained. By mom and dad, by siblings, by your neighbors, and then they go to school. And now we're really on a downward slope because now your children and each of us have been judged, we were judged, we were criticized, we were mocked for the most ridiculous things, what we happened to wear, or whether there was a gap in our front teeth, or whether we had red hair and freckles, or whatever it happened to be. The cruelty that children are trained, that they learn, they're not born with that stuff. Right on up to prisons, full of violent people and a fear-based society that elects violent people to protect us from violent people as if using fear to fight fear and violence to defeat violence and terror to oppose terror would make any sense to anybody. And yet we still have one in three Americans, one in three of our neighbors who thinks you're doing a good job, Brownie. We need more terror, more fear, and more hatred, because our fear, our terror, and our violence is good fear. We're the good pirates. It's the other guys that are the bad. Our torture at Abu Ghraib, that's good torture, don't you see? Their torture is bad torture. And that's what happens to the spontaneous love and the peace and the joy that we're born with. So. Um, Suffice to say, that technique we did two weeks ago, that self-love technique, is one that I hope you practice uh, for the rest of your lives as a, a, a wonderful way to take responsibility for love. And then see small l love, emotional love, as something you give out of your bounty rather than something you try to earn from other people. Most of us live our life backwards trying to perform for other people. People-pleasing is not a bad thing until it becomes destructive. It becomes destructive where we not only want to please other people, we need to please other people as a way, we think, of earning through this performance. The love and its various qualities like respect and trust and joy and happiness that we have no idea how to bestow upon ourselves. And so we take that which is ultimately spiritual and divine and precipitates down and reverse the process, believing that it exists in the world. I've asked clients for years this question. If I had a little puppy, some people don't like dogs, I can't imagine that, but some, you know, I say little cats. 
And I give you this little pup here, this little kitten. And the kitten curls up in your lap and, and purrs. Or the puppy scrambles up the front of you and starts licking your face like this. And I say to my client, and hypothetically, you feel this wonderful rush of love, this, this joyous warmth coming into you and through you. Where does it come from? And you know, half of my clients say the puppy. And I understand that. And the other half say, well, it really comes out of me. The puppy stimulated it, but it comes out of me. And technically, they're more right than the idea that the love comes from the puppy. Love does not come at you from others. It comes out of you. If somebody says, I love you dearly, you are my sun and my moon and my stars. I cannot live without you. And that makes you feel good. That good feeling, that love, did not come from the person who said it to you. Those kind words are a stimulus that evoke from you your love. This is probably the most important concept in this whole training. Responsibility for positive feelings allows us, beginning today, to take responsibility for the hurt. Well, yeah, but Michael, they made me angry. This person over here made me jealous. I had to do it. It's like the guy I told you about, they called my show years ago and said, Michael, I don't know what to do. People make me get into fights. It's not my fault. I don't want to fight anybody, but they, how do they do that? Well, they insult me and say mean things to me. And I say, but you throw the first punch? Yeah, well, they made me do it. See? Like Saddam Hussein made us invade Iraq. See? It's just absurd. And so this is a wonderful technique, and I want to remind you to see it as that, as a tool as part of a skill set that I'm offering you. And as we've laid in the first two classes of the six we're doing here, a real good foundation in emotional intelligence, I want to begin to give you more practical tools and techniques so that when you're sad or depressed or angry or hurt or confused or lonely and alienated, and we all go through all of those feelings, you'll have something to do you'll understand transmutation. And you'll understand how the concept of transmutation has been misunderstood and oversimplified as so many arcane concepts by religion. Because this is salvation. This is redemption. This is resurrection. This is saving. But it's also led to gold. It's also metamorphosis. You see, it's also the way we can, through understanding, lift everything that hurts from fear to love. Transmutation. It's not just something that happens at the end of your one pathetic life. It's something we can consciously do with every problem and every heartache. Lift it up.
That's what we're here to do, to bring light to the darkness, to bring understanding to the ignorant. And if that sounds like a social or a political agenda, well, it should be, and it could be, and one day it will be. But not until, first of all, it's a personal agenda for some significant number of us to reform ourselves. You know, most of you are KPFK listeners. That's probably how you know about this class and my radio show. And on KPFK, we hear lots of programming about the need for political change, for social change, for economic change, for peace and justice in all of these areas. And I'm totally on board with that. Totally on board. But what about personal change? What about personal reform? Isn't it possible that political, social, and economic reform, reform in any collective sense, has to be a function of wanting to change ourselves, to reform ourselves first? and then take that to the world, maybe a lot of us are living our lives backwards. That we want peace on earth so that we can have a little peace in our lives. Maybe it makes a whole lot more sense to establish peace as a place of power and passion and expanded awareness with practical applications in your life and then give that peace to the world by treating the guy down the block or the guy that works with you in the next cubicle who you really don't like and don't respect in a little better way. And learning how to love somebody who really doesn't like you. How to love somebody who's out to get you. How to love somebody who really is your enemy. The anniversary of the horrible slaying of school children in Amish country was last week or this week, it's at hand, may have been yesterday. And those Amish not only forgave the killer for slaughtering their innocent children in school, shooting them point blank in the back of the head while they laid on the floor crying, they went to the shooter's funeral. More than half of the people at the shooter's funeral were the Amish, practicing a quality of forgiveness, a power of love that most of us can't even imagine. It's time to begin to imagine it. And a good way to come in touch with it is love yourself. Love yourself as that child of three or four. Rediscover and rekindle. You know, like that little fire, the flames are almost out, but you fan in the flames, rekindle that self-love that you had as a kid. And find out you can be happy for no reason. You can love life. You know, I will always remember the day in 1977 when I started working at KLOS. And I was doing this talk show, and we went for a break. Obviously, as a commercial station, we were running commercials. 
And I think the show that I did initially went from like 1 a.m. to 3 in the morning or something like that. And it was getting close to the end of the program. And I thought to myself, you need a close. You need a signature. And this spot's running out. And you need to think of something to say at the end of your show that can be, just like you have an opening musical theme, how about a closing signature? You know, some little, like Keith Oberman uses uh, the uh, goodbye and good luck from, um, help me out, Noreen. Yeah. I wanted something like that. So I asked. <laughs> you know? I could say I asked myself, I could say I asked my higher self, I could say I asked my guardians, I asked my angels, I asked my overshadowing soul, I asked Jesus, I asked Buddha. I have no idea who I asked, and I really don't know who answered. But it felt good, and it came like that. And you all know it, you've heard me say it a million times. Be gentle, love life and take care of each other. It was 1977. I'm still stunned by the meaning of that phrase and what it means to me, what it continues to mean to me as the meaning mm, continues to unfold for me. That didn't come from me, that came through me like love itself. Do you understand? If I turn on the boombox and play a CD, as we did last week, the music came from the boombox. If I switch it to the radio and we listen to the radio for a while, I don't know why we would, there's not much on it other than KPFK and a little NPR. It's pretty bad. But if I did, well, you know, we, we would be accurate in saying, well, the music or the sound is still coming from the boombox, but wouldn't it be more accurate in that case to say, well, but technically it's coming through the boombox. Music from the CD came from the boombox, the radio, well, it really came through the boombox from someplace else. So love does not come at you. The stimulus that makes you feel love comes at you. And to say love comes from you is not wrong, but just incomplete. The language is it comes through you, but there's a rejoiner when you're fearless, when you're not afraid, because that's the only thing that can block love, is fear. And how ironic that so many of us love our fear, hold on to it as if fear is the way we feel safe. This is a conundrum, and you really have to begin to look at why do I, and maybe you don't, but maybe you have, and maybe from time to time you still do, and maybe you see others who really feel safer when they're afraid, but too afraid to feel safe. Don't take my fear away, Michael. Don't take it away. Don't make me fearless. Why? That would be too scary. Well, then how are you going to feel safe? To be afraid, always looking out, always expecting the worst. A little paranoia doesn't mean they aren't really out to get you. That's a good thing. Be a little paranoid, be a little frightened, be on your guard. You know, it's a cruel world out there.
Not really. I remember a buddy of mine uh, wanted me to take him backpacking. This was years and years ago, and finally I, I said, all right, let's go backpacking. He said, but I, I don't have any of the gear. I said, worry not. I'll get you a sleeping bag, I'll get you a backpack and a canteen, and I'll take care of the stove and the food. And I, I've, I've learned you don't delegate food responsibilities to others. And I said, I'll take care of all of that. You just show up Saturday morning, we'll go backpacking up in the Angeles Crust Forest for two or three days. So he shows up, and I've got all the gear laid out, going through the checklist, ka-ching, ka-ching, on the floor of the garage. It's all laid out. And Danny looks around, and he goes, well, where are the guns? It's a true story. True story. I said, what do you mean, where are the guns? He said, well, like for protection. I mean, aren't there bears up there? I said, well... Yeah, you know, Yogi and his buddies are up there looking for cookies, and yeah, yeah, there's bears up there. Well, aren't there mountain lions up there? Cougars? I said, well, yeah, you know. Aren't there wild boar up there? Like, yeah. And I said, and some skunks and some rattlesnakes, too. And he goes, they didn't think about the snakes. He's like, how's he going to hit a snake with a gun, you know? It's like, so, it occurred to me, you know, it like popped into my head, and I spontaneously, even though I'd never thought this thought quite so clearly before, I, I, I just came out of me. I said, Dan, it's important to understand the behavior of these animals and to be aware that they do exist and they are, they are out there and we're going into their neighborhood and, yeah, you don't leave your toothpaste uncapped. A bear will eat anything, you know. And Yeah, we'll bear bag our food and put it up in the tree. And we need to understand, you know, the behavior of these animals and, and basically respect the animal. But you will be safer, as this is dawning on me as I'm saying it, you will be safer surrounded by bears, lions, and rattlesnakes than walking down Brand Boulevard in Glendale or the Sunset Strip in Los Angeles. Because man is by far the most dangerous animal. And it broke my heart to hear myself explain that to him. But sadly, it's true. And I'm going to argue that the reason it's true is that we haven't evolved yet. En masse. There have always been women and men among us who understood what love really is and that that's what we are. That's who we are, emanations of perfect love, in form with a filter in a sense, made out of our fear and our ignorance. And because we don't understand love, we think it's an emotion, that what really fulfills us is some emotion that comes from other people. And if there's nobody to love you, then get a dog or a cat. And they'll love you. That's your love. I don't care how much you love that animal. That is your love. How could you feel somebody else's feelings? You can empathize. You could have some sort of rapport or even a psychic experience 
But you are the receiver of that feeling. That, 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 that is you. That's your love. That's your capacity to feel. And I want you to think of love in this way, as represented by yourself as a child. You've always heard it said, I'm sure, as I have, that if you cut down a big tree, you can tell its age by the rings. You can count the rings of the tree, and for every season it adds a ring, and so you count the rings, you know how old the tree is. Which means that every tree that this tree has ever been is still within it. Right down to the tiny pencil-thin sapling at the center of the great tree. That little sapling is still in there. And so everyone you have ever been is still within you. When a birthday comes along, you don't lose some part of yourself to gain a year. You just wax like a candle. You add a ring like a tree. And some of us grow bigger like the tree. But everybody we've ever been is still in here. That little girl, that little boy is always in us. And sometimes they hurt and they cry out and they want help and they want your attention. And those are days when we wonder why we feel so sad or so depressed or so alienated. And you look around in your life and you say, things aren't that bad, but I feel this feeling. See? Well, you could call that a memory. Or you could think of that child being alive within you. And everyone you've ever been at every mixed up and confused stage of your life, as well as all the good bits, are still in you and accessible to you through the techniques and the skill sets that you're going to learn from this point forward. Just don't overlook that very first one. Because a lot of what we're going to work with is how to transmute the hurt into love. The darkness into light. Okay. By moving into the heart of darkness. So before we can work with taking responsibility for everything that hurts, we have to take responsibility for all the love and happiness and joy that's available to us. So let that be technique number one. Again, last week was just sort of a generic technique to help you be more comfortable with this place of perfect peace. And this is a place that uh, I'd like to suggest to you becomes more beautiful and more peaceful, safer, more powerful, and more relaxing. Have you ever thought about how peace and power are not opposites, that they go together? That there is a peaceful power and a powerful peace? In fact, what could be more powerful than love? For love is the only power that builds and transmutes and refines and heals. And the other power, the power most people know, the power that most people in this earth worship, can only destroy. It can only kill and cause suffering violence and force. 
I've often thought it odd, and if there's real estate people here, I don't want to offend you. I just like to play with words. But isn't it strange? I mean, we all have houses or apartments or condos or something that we live in. We need shelter. But isn't it odd that we cut down living things and build dead things and call it development? Real estate development. You look at a beautiful, you know, take a realtor or, or, or a manager or a capitalist to a beautiful forest, and they say, yeah, ready for development. The idea that it's already developed uh, doesn't occur to them because it's just full of these pesky living things. All this green stuff, I guess, if you like all this green stuff. No, I'm talking about a mini mall and a couple of gas stations. Let's improve this place. See? We have to find a balance. And love is the way. There is no way to love. Love is the way. Love is the path. Love is the middle. It's the power. And it's the peace. And not only do you already have it, it's who you are. That's as much as I want to say about that, because it's a concept that takes a long... It might take years for that to sink in. And consider yourself blessed if a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, it's still expanding. I am love. Whoa. What does that mean? What are the implications of all of that? Okay. So that's our topic for today. At least this is where we're going to begin. We'll do an opening focus here that provides you with practical tools and techniques. And before we step into that meditation, I want to offer you, um, how can I say, a kind of a, a first aid approach. Remember last week and the week before, we talked about positive feelings as being love-based and so-called negative feelings as being fear-based. And the only thing negative about a negative feeling or a fear-based feeling is being stuck in it. That to feel you're hurt is a good thing. Again, if you ever get confused about this emotional intelligence stuff being symptoms that are in your interest, and therefore maybe negative isn't the best term, draw a parallel to physical pain. I think I reminded you last week that this is an example I often use. If I could feel no pain in this hand, if it's numb, you know, maybe I have some brain injury that prevents me from experiencing any sensation at all in my right hand. I have to be very careful. For my insensitivity could cause me to put it down on a hot stove burner or a, a, a griddle plate or, you know, a Bunsen burner or something and smell meat cooking before I realize the permanent damage I've done to my hand. But if I were sensitive to pain, not afraid of it, but sensitive to it, whoa, damn, whoa, boy, that's hot. You know, I almost burned myself. No damage. Could it be that the more sensitive I am to these so-called negative feelings, the more sensitive I am to pain, the sooner I feel it, the less damage is done and the less hurt I suffer. 
But when I attempt to steel myself to resist feeling the pain, to turn and run the other way, or simply brace myself and gird my loins, it hurts. If you don't believe me, do it at the dentist. Ask any dentist. When, I, when you start gripping the, uh, that white knuckle deal, you know, you start gripping the arms of the dentist chair, and your back starts to arch, and without realizing it, you start standing up, <laughs> I don't care how much Novocaine or nitrous you've got, you are increasing your sensitivity to pain in such a way that you're going to hurt more and more and more and more. It's the resistance to pain that hurts, not the pain. What does that mean? And on the other hand... If you relax before the dentist works, and even more importantly, if your response to any discomfort or pain is not to tighten further, but to surrender, to let go, to maybe even die to the pain, we'll find out what that means today, you can transcend it. No pain. We call it hypnoanesthesia. I haven't had shots in Novocaine in 30 years. People say, wow, so you use those techniques to tolerate all that? No, I don't tolerate anything. I don't feel it. Are you really that numb that you can do that? No, I can feel everything. I can feel the, the Hoover, that suction, and that thing they put in there when it pinches your lip and they lean against it. I can taste the powder on the latex glove. I can feel the tiny little... This won't last long. <laughs> I can feel the tiny little pick in there scraping and probing around like it's any of his business. But it's as if they're, I've created with my mind, with my attitude, with my refusal to resist, and on the contrary, to open to it, it's, it's, it seems that we're able to create a threshold, a kind of a filter. If you're electronically oriented, maybe you know what an RF choke does, allowing some frequencies to pass and limiting others. So that in these states of deep relaxation in the dentist chair, you can feel every sensation in the mouth up to the point that would be painful. And you just don't feel anything beyond that point of discomfort. And if you do, because maybe the dentist is drilling deeper and deeper and subconscious mind goes, whoa, never had to go this deep, okay. Then you consciously take a breath, relax, maybe even ask for a minute and go deeper. Go deeper and more relaxed. It's conceivable you picked up a little tension unconsciously, a little micro-tightening that you're not even aware of, and now you need to go deeper and more relaxed. The same thing, my dear friends, is true with emotions. It's the resistance to feeling a feeling that hurts that creates the hurt. Those damn hippies were right. Go with the flow. Dude. Okay? Actually, it's Taoism, isn't it? Go with the flow. 
You know, the, the wonderful Taoist example of the water and the stream coming to the rock. And if the water were a human, it would beat up the rock, it would kick the rock, it would threaten the rock, it would smash the rock. Not the Iraq, the rock in the... Life's so ironic, isn't it? No, the water just says, cool. Hey, rock, and it splits and goes around the rock and then heals itself on the other side and moves on as if nothing happened. The Tao, the flow, the way. It's a beautiful concept. And we can learn to do that. Change our lives from fighting and scraping, crawling, clawing our way through a minefield of pain and suffering. And instead, embrace your problems and embrace your heartaches and waltz them across the dance floor. And they change. You heal your hurt. Emotionally, physically too. But this is a class on emotional intelligence and emotional identity in that you then become the healer. Not the victim. Not the sympathy seeker. Oh, you had to go to the dentist. Oh, I'm so sorry. Tell me your horrible story. Oh, it really hurt. And then these appeals for sympathy. You'd have to give that up. If you said, well, actually, I took a deep breath and relaxed and the, the pain went away. And there was one point where it started getting a little more severe, but I took another deep breath and relaxed even further and again released the pain and discomfort. No sympathy. Guess you'd have to talk about something positive and productive and life-affirming instead of what passes for small talk with most of our friends, the pity party. So, what do we do when we hurt? Especially when you're not in a situation to meditate. You know, you're on the bus, you're in a city park, you're at work. You can't close your eyes. It's not safe to close your eyes. Not that somebody's going to steal your bag or lift your wallet or sneak up behind you. They're more likely to come and see if you're dead. Are you okay? Something wrong with you? Sitting here with your eyes closed, what's the matter with you? <laughs> Imagine. So, there are many situations where we can't do the kind of techniques that I'm featuring. And you need a simpler uh, stopgap, a first aid approach. And it's so simple. And so easy, and some of you know exactly what I'm going to say. The secret, really. Breath. Focusing on the exhalation. Slow, deep breathing. One of the reasons it's so difficult for cigarette smokers to stop smoking cigarettes is that when they stop smoking cigarettes, they stop doing this. That rush ain't coming from the cigarette. 
That rush from the first hit of a cigarette, I smoked for years. I know the whole ritual. Oh, especially getting a new pack. Oh, my Lord. Packing it down and ceremoniously taking the... Just like Mom and Dad used to do. Aren't we all grown up and then peel the little paper away and tap it just so? And Oh, a fresh pack and a fresh cigarette. And I was always stunned as a smoker how every cigarette I lit, I love to smoke. And eight minutes later, as I'm grinding it out in the ashtray, I'm disgusted with myself. I just hate myself. It's like, what's wrong with you, Michael? Until 40 minutes later, and I get another cigarette. I, oh, boy, I get to breathe. Imagine. Well, we don't need a damn cigarette to go... Slowly. Now, for many of us, it's hard to take more than four seconds to inhale or more than four seconds to exhale. It's free-floating or non-specific anxiety that makes our breathing so shallow. And the more stressed we are, the more apprehensive, the more frightened, the more fearful, the shallower our breathing becomes. Okay. And so the very first thing, and if it's the only thing you can do to manage stress, anxiety, apprehension, the F word, can we use it? Fear, that dirty, dirty word that's so frightening, is to breathe and see if you can get from four seconds to six seconds, maybe even to eight long seconds on an inhale. Pause for just a beat at the top and then exhale just as slowly. Remembering at the completion of the exhalation, to go beyond where you'd normally stop. Because you leave about 25% in the lungs, that needs to go too. And it'll feel like that's really hard to take 17 or 18 seconds for one slow inhalation and exhalation. My body thinks it's going to suffocate. It wants to breathe faster. No, it's the nature of fear. All right? A fear that you have to breathe faster or you're going to die. Because after all, the subconscious mind, the brain, the, um, perhaps the body itself interprets all fear, anxiety, and stress as if it's danger. So it's trying to put you into that fight-or-flight response. So having said this much, I'd like to introduce the idea of meditation and self-hypnosis and all of the altered states work as essentially three separate affirmations, positive statements or actions that you take. This is an approach to meditation that I think is eminently reasonable and creates a whole new context, even for those of you, perhaps, who've meditated for some time. You see, the slow, deep breath, which is the way we always begin meditation, many meditations are nothing but conscious breathing. Okay? The slow, deep, diaphragmatic yoga breath. But it's really a message from the conscious to the subconscious. 
saying, even if you don't run the thoughts through your head, subconscious is very smart, much smarter than conscious. Okay? And basically what a slow deep breath does is pass a message to the subconscious that this stress is not about danger. Or you would not be closing, or you, you would not be breathing slow, deep breaths. If this anxiety, this fear, this stress, this apprehension was coming from some danger, real or imagined, our eyes would be open and our pupils dilated. Right? So just closing your eyes and breathing, well, I've jumped ahead now. Closing your eyes would be a second message. First, a breath. Focusing especially on the exhalation. Ah, closing your eyes, a second message. Yeah, I know you're saying to your subconscious that this stress and this anxiety that may even be nonspecific, just free-floating anxiety from the life I li uh, live, the life I lead, may look like danger, but it's not. See my breathing? Ah, the sigh of relief. Ah, slow breathing. And then you close your eyes, step two. A second message to the subconscious that, yeah, this stress, this apprehension, this anxiety, this muscular tension, I understand could be perceived quite easily as evidence that I'm facing some sort of danger. Imagined, if not real, but danger. But I'm going to consciously breathe and now close my eyes as evidence that this stress, this anxiety, is about things unknown, not danger. It's about my confusion. All fear is about what you don't know. And so that pretty much wraps it up. That's all the time we have for today for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next week. We'll have a guest again. Stay tuned for The Carrie Harrison Show. Remember, the homepage for this program is theagelesswisdom.com. The T-H-E is part of it, theagelesswisdom.com. More about me at michaelbenner.com. And as always... Be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. From Los Angeles, this is Michael Benner on KPFK.